Today's guest is Ketan Umar. Ketan is the CEO and co-founder of Union AI, a leading AI orchestration platform. Over his career, Ketan has developed an expertise in distributed systems. He started in finance, working on anomaly detection and high-frequency trading, then into the tech world, Amazon, Oracle, and Lyft. A few of the topics we'll be covering are cultural differences between finance and tech, the founding of Union, and the latest trends in MLOps. Ketan, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to learn more about your world this afternoon. Yeah, thank you for having me here, Sheikh. It's great to be the human behind AI, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> You're the first guest who's referenced the title during the interview, so thank you for that. This was not staged. This was not staged at all. Yeah, I really love the title. Because AI is only so far as the humans can take it at the moment. All the good stuff and the baggage that comes with it as well. Looking at your background, you've done some like really impressive things across a lot of different industries and companies there, but it seems the connective theme has been to work on different types of distributed systems. Looking back on your career, what sort of led to the interest in that field? How did you identify it as your area of passion? Looking back, you find connecting dots. This is a famous saying by Steve Jobs. Don't try to join the dots yeah. into the future. They will connect. And they do. It's like now I've been two decades of engineering. And my first job, I started writing C++ code, trying to build anti-money laundering software. One of the first things I had to do was actually trying to figure out how to, I guess vector searches would have solved the problem quite a bit recent. Now, we didn't have it then in 2004. So we were building a genetic search for known entities which could cause problems within who were known bad guys. And the names of those people changed, the addresses where they live changed. So we were trying to match up everything based on certain identified attributes. And this is a complicated problem for 2003 specifically. And writing it in C++ and, you know, writing all kinds of database stuff in there, it turned out to be a large scale problem. From there on, because it was anti-money laundering, we were also trying to do ML. We actually had a neural network running in the system at this point, kind of not, did not work at all. So then we tried to build a statistical model for identifying cohorts because usually any kind of fraudulent activity happens in cohorts. And so like I was not really thinking of building ML or AI. Not a lot of people in the world were doing that sort of stuff. And we were interested in building this behavioral detection platform, which would come up. And that's another place where we found, oh my God, this needs a lot of compute and it's hard and you know, it needs to be fast. Because of the time when this is 2005, six time frame, distributed systems, Google was doing writing interesting papers and so on. But we, I had no idea what people were doing. And so we thought more about high-performance computing because that was the thing. And so that led me to like, I know nothing. I need to learn more. And I went to Georgia Tech to learn more about high-performance computing. And I was in the lab that did high-performance computing research. And interestingly, I was working on GPU prior to CUDA 1.0. I was working on kernel, sparse matrix, dense matrix, multiplication, addition, subtraction. The CUDA base is all basically Kublas. Kublas comes from BLAST kernel, which is basically their algebra. And then Kublas is the CUDA optimized version of those. And I was working on those. I was doing all of the C++ and I was like, uh, and my entire day would be just like looking. And CUDA, this is like old, old, early days of CUDA. Terrible. Just goes offline. I have no idea what happened. There's no GitHub. There's no easy way to search code. There's no easy way to find an instruction set. I have a big manual next to me that I'm reading through. Oh, this is the ADX instruction. This is the, that, that type of, it's called SSE and so on. Like, 
And I was just going through the entire manual and what we were trying to write is the auto-tuner system where you write the code once and it will optimize automatically on any platform, including GPUs. And GPUs was just this new thing. We were thinking, maybe this is interesting. We could do some cool computing on this, on Intel machines or on the thing called a PowerPCA, which is IBM's mm-hmm. infrastructure which drove PlayStation. PlayStation's processor was really one of the best processors until we were trying to write for it. And that's what led, because of my expertise in this, I went into high-frequency training. Because <laughs> I could write like really, really fast stuff. And it was fun. And I was in Citadel in their market-making high-frequency trading team. Worked on that for a little bit. But my girlfriend, who I followed from India to US to Georgia Tech, she was in the University of Florida. She was like, yeah, I'm going to go to Amazon for my full time. That's in Seattle. And I'm like, I'm in Chicago. That's not going to work out long distance. <laughs> so I said, okay, I will follow you. And anyway, there was a part of me that was saying that, you know, in finance, I did not feel I was a driver. I wanted to do more technology. And so mm-hmm. I was like, all right, I'll follow you. <laughs> and that's how I applied to Amazon. And I got, of course, an offer in the transportation team. And I had no idea. What does it mean? Amazon for me was not even a technology company in 2008. Somehow landed up there. It was interesting. At that time, I also had a Facebook offer and a few other things. You know, looking back in time, it was like, oh, it would have been a better thing to have taken up that offer. But yeah, I ended up at Amazon in logistics first couple of weeks. We were solving like this is prior to transportation platforms and so on. Right? Just like So we were trying to make logistics problems that started getting introduced to distributed systems, right? Not really just mm-hmm. optimizing one thing. Because I actually remember one of my first PRs in Amazon. That time Amazon used to use a lot of C++. And this was like transportation code. It doesn't matter performance really. But I sent out a PR that said, that did like all of this bitwise comparison, et cetera. And the person who said, why is it so complicated? I'm like, this reduces the total number of branch mispredictions. Branch mispredictions are like when you're writing code. And it's sending to the sure. processor to avoid cache misses. Okay. This is completely useless shit nowadays. But to avoid cache misses, you can write code in a way that avoids taking good branches. You can use a lot of pointers. And I use all of that. And he was like, why are you doing all this? Nobody cares about performance. You know, just do. And I'm like, why do people not care about performance? And I learned. And then I started writing code in Java. And then I thought, oh my God, there is no performance. And then I did maps. And then went to Oracle where I led like block storage and a bunch of low-level stuff and then finally ended up at Lyft. And so it's just like, you know, how things connect. I don't think I yeah. wanted to do distributed systems over a period I love, started loving it. I don't think I am like a specialist in anything. I'm more of a generalist and a genuinely curious person. So I just try to do mm-hmm. new things, right? which all kind of end up looking the same eventually. When you made that shift from working on high-frequency trading systems to Amazon there, Were there any like major technical cultural changes that occurred in going from a finance first mindset to a technical one? Massive. Interestingly, Citadel or high frequency trading specifically in market making is not really traditional finance, right? It's more (laughs) high tech finance, right? And this is early days of high frequency trading. Like this is when people were like, there was a lot of arbitrage that could be exploited purely by being fast. It doesn't exist anymore, I think. But I, I have not seen that much nowadays. This is the time when you could be closer to the exchanges and that right, one right. millisecond saving could like, okay, I made five pennies or whatever on every transaction. 
And so that's yeah. the team I was in. And the entire company was a bunch of quants and all math Olympiad winners, physics PhDs, all kinds of like really, really smart people and me. And I was in a team which was basically like seven of the best C++ developers that I've worked with in my life. And they were just like, drink a beer, write code and boom. Six months later, <laughs> this guy made a billion dollars in profit. Yeah, it was a completely different culture. And then when I went to Amazon, the culture was very different. It was more about take a step back, think bigger. What else can you build, which is bigger than larger than life? Oh. Right? It's not about performance, but it's building larger architectures that actually allow you to do more with business. And there was a shift. Then purely optimizing that one bit, that one cell, the, when should I take the sell yeah. side or the buy side? How do I exploit the ask, bid, spread, etc. You know, it's different type of people, different type of culture. Money is different. I like the tech world way more. I have a bunch of questions about Union, but before diving into there, looking at Union as a whole, how would you describe what it does to a five-year-old? Great question. It's a hard question to answer as usual. But what I want to say is like when you talk about chat GPT, I think this is what I will say, like AI or when you talk about any of these fun things. So as a five-year-old, my daughter's always, I have a Tesla, I drive a Tesla. And she's sitting and she's like, oh, is it driving on its own now? Right? That's the question she asks. Or if she sees the maps on the screen, she'll be like, how does it know about the light? And how does it know about these things? And so I tell her in behind the scenes, like there is a bunch of Lego blocks. Like behind the scenes is a beautiful castle. But to build a castle, you need a bunch of Lego blocks. And the Lego blocks need a way to fit onto each other, right? So instead of Lego blocks, I think the grooves that make it fit is really the fabric that makes the Legos connect with each other. And that's what Union does. Union builds those grooves so that people, when they try to build their beautiful castles, it just works. Then she still asks, like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, but, but I did try this. My daughter's four years old. Maybe next year she'll understand more. <laughs> so. I was reading more about Union and it seems the concept was born during your time at Lyft developing Slide. Could you share more about the early days of what working on it looked like and when you decided to spin it off as a company and go full-time on it? It's a very interesting story because it's happenstance more than a planned event. My advice to people is sometimes you have to let your life, don't plan it too much. It's just like, you know, just live it. Yeah. Just enjoy that moment <laughs> and do the most you can in that moment. The way I joined Lyft also was very interesting. I was going to Oracle and the reason why I went to Oracle is because one of my colleagues at Amazon just left Amazon and went to Oracle and he claimed he's now the EVP of Oracle Cloud. And both of us were in the same team and he's like, dude, you should come over. And I'm like, okay, what are you doing in Oracle? And so it's like, no, we are going to build cloud from ground up. Oh, that sounds cool. So I just left and I went and we were the first 10 people or so that started Oracle Cloud. At that time, when I was going to Oracle, I also interviewed with Lyft. And why did I interview? Was just because I saw the pink mustache. I was like, this looks like a really cool company. I guess Lyft will hate me. One of the other things was my wife said, I want to go to San Francisco. And I said, yeah, I can interview with companies and I can get a free interview. So I did get a free trip. San Francisco and I got an offer from Lyft in 2014 or something and I said I cannot join I don't want to move to San Francisco so I'm not going to join yeah. and they were like oh what if we come to Seattle or what if they ever want open I'm like hit me up when you open up an office in Seattle and I will consider right and as it happened a year later they literally picked me like, hey are we opening an office in Seattle do you want to be the first couple of people to start joined there I'm like I met Oracle I'm having fun but they said what was happening during that time when I was at Oracle was I was missing working on and maps. As we were discussing just prior to this, like I led 
building maps at Amazon. And like, that was one of the funnest problems of my life that I worked on. So it's like, ah, and live that core, most important thing is like maps, geospatial understanding of the world. And I was like, oh, I could work on that. That's cool. And that's how I ended up at Lyft. They said, we'll do it, you'll work. And when your love of your life called, you go. And so I went and I did not want to do infrastructure because I was doing infrastructure. If I really had to, wanted to do infrastructure, I could have done it a lot ago. I was like, I don't want to do infrastructure. I want to do this map stuff, which is what I love. But I ended up not doing purely maps. I started doing initially locations and moved to ETI. And I used to lead a team called ETA, which is essentially when you open up the app, it tells you three minutes to get a ride. It turns out there's maps, there's routing engines and so on. But the core of it is really a data science ML problem. Because the three minutes to get a ride and $20 to go to your destination is dependent on your time and estimate. And these are very, very critical numbers. You get that number wrong, you lose confidence, trust, you affect conversion, affect bottom lines. If you really predict the cost wrong for the ride, then it ends up paying the other side. So it was very important to optimize those numbers. Because of that, we were applying a lot of ML. And this was my twist with ML again, or I just kind of coincidentally started working on it. And I was leading this. I'm like, how am I leading this? I know nothing about this stuff. I'm like, how am I leading this team? But I saw the plight of the people within the team. Like, you know, there was a genuine pattern at that time where there were data scientists who were writing a kind of libraries models and then engineers were deploying these things and getting paged in the middle of the night. And I was like, I don't know what this model does, so I'm going to just turn it off and do something else. It's a typical pattern, right? Because <laughs> there's like one of the things about Copilot. If Copilot writes all the code that a human is supposed to deploy and make it run in production, <laughs> nobody, it's not going to be successful. Because humans will be like, this guy did it wrong, and it's Copilot, it's a machine. So it's same yeah. thing happens when there is like, you know, this lack of ownership across teams or people and individuals, there is finger pointing that happens. And I was like, this is my team. I was like, I don't want this to happen. So let's, how do I solve it? So one weekend, I literally went and I said, I kind of identified the problem. People were running things on their own. There was no sharing. There was no collaboration between engineers mm-hmm. and data scientists. They didn't call them ML engineers then. So I was like, how do I get them under the same fabric, talking in the same language and doing their independent things and not just shoving things over each other? And I, there were many problems. Things were not getting checked in. Jupyter notebooks were like on their laptops. And people were, you know, you ask engineers, engineers would say, oh, data scientists don't write great code. If you ask data scientists, they'll say, oh, engineers don't understand what I do. They don't. And fundamental problem that I found was that software engineering and ML engineering or ML data science or ML are very fundamentally different processes. Software engineering is like, you have a problem to solve, you get 10 people and you give them enough money and resources and time, you can solve the problem. If you know what problem you are going to solve. In data science, knowing the problem is only one part of the journey. You have to experiment. And the way you collaborate is not by working on the same thing at the same time. You kind of get two people to work on two different ideas solving the same problem because you don't know which one's going to win. So it's naturally a different way of working on a problem. And then once you get something in production, it may not work. Even if it works, it may not last. And if it doesn't last, then you have to redo it. And if this is the reality, all the infrastructure and tooling that we've built for solving software problems does not apply to ML and yeah. I didn't realize it on that day. I would have been like Professor but it wasn't. I actually slowly over a period, I initially thought there was some problem and I want to get them to work together. And so we did something and we got my team was successful. And the company was one of the only teams that was really delivering models at that frequency. And there were many other, what we found, there were many other teams like pricing, dispatch and driver efficiency, targeting and couponing. And like 
campaigns and they were all struggling in different levels. What we said is, let's try and I wrote a big paper, like 17 pages long that said, here's the platform that somebody should build and I will use it. And so will these other people, because I've been studying this problem and everybody in the company was like, no, 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 you cannot build this platform. This is like, we are not technologically that play. We don't have the people. That was a challenge. And so we took that challenge and built the first versions of ML platform. There was no ML platform at that time. And out of which we were just working on flight at the moment. And people started using it. Rapid fire adoption within six months. And then other companies started reaching out to us. And that led us to writing a new version that would be eventually open sourceable. There were lots of learning. When you're solving a problem very much as it comes by, you're only learning about the problems. And you are kind of removing the roadblocks. And so we reached a bunch of solutions that we ended up resolving. That's what was open source two years later called Flight. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so the early days were essentially lots of effort, lots of blood, sweat and tears really at some point because you don't know what you're solving. But it only happens when you get the motivation of end users. Users were able to deliver really, really cool things. At some level, some people said that this platform allows me to do arbitrary things at scale. <laughs> it's like, it, was, it was amazing. It was like, you know, then then people started using it, abusing it, doing all kinds of things with the platform. And we realized there is something there. That's what led to the starting of the company and so on. When Union became its own entity and you started taking on more and more customers, were there any major platform changes? I'm wondering what type of really customer feedback challenged initial assumptions that you had made about how the platform would progress? We've been learning more and more. There's so much to be done. We barely scratched like 15% of the surface area, I feel. The first time when we first started the company, we realized one thing for sure is that the problem is not very well understood. At Lyft, when we were there, we were like, hey, everybody understands the problem. We don't have to sell anything. So we didn't pay attention to really positioning, messaging. You don't do that at a company. You just have, at the end point, go use it. Here's a bunch of use cases and people just do code search. They find it. Ah, oh, this is how it gets all that way. Go and use it. And starting the company was a complete coincidence, mostly because I was looking around to leave Lyft and see what I would do next. And most people wanted me to work on their ML platform. We did it. So on. And I was like, oh, interesting. There's a theme here. So probably there is a use case. But when I also started talking to other people and they didn't understand the problem. And I was like, okay, why do you not understand the problem? And the reason is the ML platforms itself do not exist till like very late part of the last decade. And if that is the case, then arriving at the same set of assumptions with us will take some time. We were like the number one challenge that we had was education. Like that, these are the challenges. Once you start making AI products, you will have these challenges. And those challenges are now hopefully better understood in some places, but still not 100%. It's different from software. It's more iterative. It's like zero to one here doesn't mean build some MVP, deploy it, and then iterate on it and keep on improving for the next four years. It means take something, deploy it, and probably throw it away and again go to zero and start again. Right? And it's just like, you know, no matter the best model in the world today will become not good in a few months to a year to like sometime. So you have to iterate. You have to improve and many times you have to challenge your assumptions. If you are prior to COVID to after COVID, completely different set of assumptions in business and environmental and political factors. Wars affect models, prices affect models, interest rates affect models. So if all of this is reality, then it's a constant evolutionary thing. Models are like humans. We have to evolve every day. Software is not like humans. Software just like sits around in a database like PostgreSQL still is almost it's not identical, but it's, the code base has remained 
quite a bit similar. The assumptions has remained similar. RDBM is it. But there is no model that was written 10 years ago that exists in production today. And that's mm. because things evolve. And so we had to educate. We educated and we were like, we have to open source this stuff. Otherwise, if it's closed source, people will, you know, if there is a dollar value associated with it, even to get trying it, you'll pay. So we did the open sourcing. And it's also a vast problem. So we wanted to work with a lot of different people to solve it. And then when we were thinking, whom should we be working with to solve this problem? We should be working with all the best platform engineers in the world who are trying to build these ML platforms. And how do you do that? If you start becoming the platform that actually goes and displaces their jobs, you cannot do that. Uh, unless you hire everybody, which you cannot do. So then we were like, okay, open source allows you to do that. Open source allows you to get very close to almost all of the smart people in the world. And what ends up happening is because AI is so hot at the moment, all the smart people get diverted towards this problem. It's natural. It's like anything that becomes hot, the company CEO says like, hey, this is the most important thing. <laughs> the CTO says, okay, I'm going to put my attention. Okay, I need to find my A team, move it to that. And that's happening. And they all start working with us. And this is a great feedback loop that you keep on improving. It's a longer process. And we identified that. We are like, okay, this is not a short-term process. This is a longer process. And to build a sustainable business, we have to go through this long process. There was no amazing open source company that was built in like two years. This has not happened. And the reason is because you have to generally, like when Kafka first came out, people used to be like, why do I need this? I can use Celery, I can use Qs, I can use this. But they are different, inherently different. But, you know, it's not initially obvious. Similarly, when Spark first came out, I could use Hadoop, I could use Hadoop. But it always feels similar to the current existing technology because that's your point of reference. But it's a step change that's happening underneath. And so you have to give it time. And we realized that. And that's how this was our biggest challenge. On that open source piece, in terms of really growing the level of community engagement and making sure you have like sharp feedback loops, what are some of the ways you tried to initially foster that community? And why do you think the open source community there has been so engaged throughout Union's development? One of the most important things you've actually hit the point is a very engaged community. And to do that, you actually have to engage. A community doesn't form on its own, even though, you know, it feels that community is just an automatic organic process. It doesn't really happen. So you have to be intentional in creating a community and you have to be intentional in creating the right type of community. And the way we approach the problem is like, I still am active in the community. I still answer questions. I still talk to people. There are rules of a community and one of them is open and inviting. So people know inclusive in a way. So you have to be specifically in this AI world, there are people coming from different domains, software engineers, infrastructure engineers, ML engineers, data scientists, data engineers, all gravitating towards a central problem with different domains and different expertise and different levels. And out of school, kids, like literally, you know, kids in school, you have to build a community where they feel open to voice therapy. So that's one. And feel invited and can share and learn. Second part is really somebody has, a community is 24-7. They don't operate in nine to five. You cannot choose where your people are, where your community folks are. They could be in Japan, Korea, China, India, Europe, US. And so you have to have some sort of availability in terms of initially answering questions, making people feel welcome and so on. And then finally, you have to constantly hear, attend, accept, and react to the suggestions, which is the feedback loop. You have to kind of create the feedback loop, right? Feedback happens. If you don't respond, there's no loop. And if once yeah. is not enough, you have to do this like a few times till it starts spinning. And once it starts spinning, then it kind of like starts going. 
and you see it. Like literally, there are days when I was like, initially, I remember the first few days and it's like, oh my God, there's nobody. And then I'm like, why, why? And, but, you know, it's the same as my first office that we first created. And it was a small space, but there was nobody in the office. I was only in the 40 person in the office. But as people got at it, it creates community. And as that feedback, it spins faster and faster. That's I what I would say. For all the customers that you have, do most of your customers start originally as open source users or is there a different sales process there? No, actually, some open source users stay open source users. And our vast majority number of users for us is open source users. And that's okay with thousands of companies in the world that use that. But some of them, and the way they come to Union is in three ways. And Union itself is a go-to-market, the real go-to-market, money-making go-to-market, began because we saw problems with open source and where we can introduce, improve, and add more value. That's where we had started adding value. And now we're like even adding more value in certain other dimensions. But the number one is I am using flight. It's scaling code quite a bit. I need to be the need to scale and I don't want to manage it. So that's one set of customers. Second customers, I want to use flight. I don't have the technical expertise. So this is the second category is either this or I use flight in my previous company. I loved it. I'm starting a new company or I'm joining a new company. And the third one is I want to do something with my ML process. I don't know what the right things are. And these are completely so warm code leads. We actually did not have any outbound almost. We completely relied mm-hmm. on inbound for, because we were, we, you know, we were building the hosted product too. You, can't, you don't want like hundreds of people on it when yeah. you're building it. You want a few people. And then eventually we, it led to a point where we started doing verticalized outbound, where we found success in certain areas. And that's where we reach out more. And those could be warm too. Cold leads too rather and convert them. So all three, and the goal of currently what union, the phase that we are in is to create repeatable sales motion. And what does that mean? Repeatable sales means that we are able to repeat our sales performance. And we wanted to do it in all three dimensions because this series A to B is really a honeymoon period, right? You have to kind of prove all of this. You don't get this time. When you are B, the clock starts ticking. You have to really start moving and growing faster and faster and faster. So we are taking our time to learn the ropes. With this past year, there's obviously been an explosion in public and investor attention around large language models. And with a union doing a lot of the core foundational work, going back to the educating the market component that you were talking about before, do you feel there has been a change in the types of questions your customers are asking you and how people are evaluating the company? Lots of change. From everybody, right? Last year, people were like, what's the use of AI? Is it the top 20, 30 companies in the world who can really, you know, use it to production? The ROI is low, et cetera. Like I've heard actually people say this to me and, you know, even some investors, et cetera. This prior to judging. <laughs> so the pendulum was here, let's say, which is like, you know, I am aware of AI, but I don't see value. After chat GPT, everybody was like, oh my God, I need NLMs. Boom. The other end of the spectrum. And you're like, okay, what? And we are standing here, right? And you went across and you went here and okay, we need LLM. Yes, sure. But what are you going to do? And, and some people were saying, I don't want to build ML infrastructure anymore. I want to build LLM infrastructure. How is that different? Like, can you please describe how is it different? And it's just like, I've actually seen job postings that say like, we want to do LLM ops and LLM infrastructure and LLM model training. And I'm like, okay, why do you add LLM to model training? It's just model training, right? Like, it's like, those are the things or evaluation or like yeah. many other things that you do. That was the interesting thing. And then what we are seeing is the people who are here and they might come back over here 
that's the sad reality in some cases because they go with very high expectations to the far end and they are unable to fulfill some of those expectations because you did not do your groundwork. You do not have a strong foundational fundamentals. And so now you're trying to do like the far end of the spectrum. It doesn't work like that, right? Or in some cases, they are like, you know, coming over to the center. But that takes time. A frenzy happened with ChatGPT that led CEOs, CTOs, CDOs, all of these people to go and like invest in LLMs and like, you know, there's a purchase a bunch of, it is expensive without having a proper ROI in some cases. And that causes changes in the outlook. And we are seeing them more come, more rationalization happening. That doesn't mean LLMs are wrong. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that the rationalization is that there is a need for having a strong foundational piece. Without that, you are just like, you know, you will be at the mercy of, not only mercy, like for example, you write a chatbot purely, which is pretty, let's say straightforward now, you chat GPT and you go and deploy it. Let's say that chatbot has a wrong answer or answers incorrectly to a customer query. What's your recourse? I have no idea. Is it even going to repeat that thing? You don't even know that, right? So there needs to be some businesses need certainty in certain things. And then there, it's doable. It's just that there need, needs to be work. You need to create instrument correctly. This is the same. I was telling somebody like in 2008 or something, if you'd go and ask companies, do you want to use a CI/CD system? Almost literally everybody would say, what? I have a service. I can deploy it. Everything's fine. It's cool, right? And today, the first thing that almost every startup, even a ML startup does is like, you know, what's a CI/CD pipeline? That's how we see the evolution happening at some point, right? It's like going to be like, you will do the far extreme today and then you will rationalize it to a much more repeatable process. The very last question I have for you is looking at how unions been evolving over the past couple of years, are there any particular pieces of the company culture you've tried really hard to maintain? What would you say is one of the core LPs of union? Oh, leadership principles. Interesting. We do have some, which we post also, and we did improve them. We have examples. We actually just spent a fair bit of time coming up with LPs, with examples, and with like things that we believe in. And we have like two ways of thinking about it. There are leadership principles, and then we say how we work and how we operate, or how we think about how we build products also. Like that falls into that second category. But the leadership principles, that the number one that I learned from Amazon and I completely, utterly respect is customer obsession. And I think it is a differentiator. It is absolutely the game changer for our companies. You know, it's very easy to say, it's very hard to put in practice. And so mm-hmm. we have consistently, and then the best way to do it is to lead by example and be in the forefront, right? You have to feel the customer, you have to imbibe it. And that's what we try and do, whether it's open source or closed source. Both of our customers are customers and we feel the pain. The second thing is, so we believe in a few things. The second one is trust. But we don't say on trust because on trust is not good enough, right? We believe that we start with a position of trust. Because on trust takes time. Essentially, in my opinion, in the few years that I've worked now, I find that earning trust is where you start doing politics. <laughs> Whose trust will you earn? You have to earn trust from your peers, your downstream, your upstream. And you start seeing upstream as the most important as a decision maker point of view. And you start trying to earn trust from the upstream. And that leads to the wrong locally suboptimal decisions and globally suboptimal decisions. So I was like, no, you come in with a position of trust, but you have to work hard to maintain that trust. So, you know, that's the difference between earning and maintaining trust. A third one is when we were initially doing, we realized we didn't have this as a principle, but we added it. Let's get things done. 
Sometimes it's scary. It's okay. We'll fail. It's okay to fail. But let's get things done. Let's put that bias on that action and move faster. And we've actually, after enacting this, we've seen that change. It does influence. I never used to believe like whatever it does. Like we use it consistently and it changes. Another one is like, what is the use of, like, why are we a startup? And what power does a startup have against all the big behemoths of the world, especially the big five, right? The only thing it has is it has one, fast decision-making agility, but like most importantly, what is that useful for is innovation. It can innovate rapidly because it should not fear. So we call it fearless innovation is a key thing that we care about. We'll do crazy things that people will not think is possible because we believe in that we can do it and we go for it. And yeah, if it fails, it's okay. But at least we tried. And I know for a fact that large companies cannot do it because they're afraid of the failure. And then finally, like inclusivity and like how we maintain the internal culture. We value opinions a lot and we want really flat organizations. It stems from me. I'm an engineer and I see. So I believe the best way to build is to like, you need to allow people to come to the table with opinions and express them. And they should be expressed and they should be heard and they should be talked about. I actually hate the culture of being just good to everybody all the time. I think it's much better to be honest about things that are not working. And so, you know, that self-reflection is very important. A fearless innovation. I love that term. That's going to be the next t-shirt I make. We should have a fearless innovation t-shirt. We have all of these principles and cool logos next to them. That sounds like a great holiday gift for your team if you need ideas. Thank you. That's a good idea. <laughs> cool. Well, uh, Kevin, thank you so much for sharing about your time and experiences. I know me and the rest of the world are very excited to see you and the Union team keep evolving. Oh, no, thank you. It's wonderful to talk to you. And this was a lot of fun. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by H10. Part about advanced technology that never changes is the need for the right people to design, build, and manage it. H10 offers just that with an on-demand talent and management service that covers all aspects of engineering, program management, and AI. Trusted by over 400 companies, including half of the Fortune 10, H10 is here to help lighten your load and make you the hero. 